Well, a big wahoo. Right, Kurt? Amen. Jeff, I feel you. I'm, I'm with you. Um, hey, we're going to dismiss our kids. If you've got kids that are in, kin- or, uh, in uh, elementary school, you guys are going to head out the back middle doors here to meet your teachers. If you've got younger ones, you guys can take them to class here now. Um, while they do that, I want to do two things. Um, I want to encourage you guys. If you, Jordan, can you put that baptism slide up there? You know, we, are, we have three services, but we are one church. And there are four more folks being baptized this morning. And I want to encourage you uh, to hop on our website and just put, add a backslash baptisms. Or if you're a, a techie, you can use our QR code and use your phone to open up that uh, baptism. But I encourage you to read those baptisms. We want to celebrate what the Lord is doing here. And it's, it's important when there are three what feels like three separate congregations to kind of draw us together and say, hey, no, we are one church. And so I want to encourage you to read those when you have time. Uh, The other thing I want to do is, since it is Memorial Day weekend, if you are a veteran or an active service member or family of one, I just just want to stop and say thank you. Appreciate you and your service to our country. Um, We're grateful for you. So, yeah. Well, there are a few faces here that I um, don't know personally, so I want to do this and make sure I introduce myself. My name is Tim Adams. Uh, I'm the other Tim on staff. I go by TA, one of the associate pastors here, and uh, it's a joy to be able to teach this morning and and open up the word with you. Uh, We're going to be in Luke chapter 9. If you've got a Bible and want to open it up there, we're going to take a look at the first 17 verses in Luke 9. and as we begin that, I want to think, I think it's important to kind of understand where we're at in the overall gospel of Luke. Uh, the chapter 9 of Luke is, is, is a transition chapter um, in Luke's writing. And what we're going to read this morning is actually the conclusion of Jesus's ministry in, in Galilee. He's going to be wrapping up his ministry uh, there, and now he is going to be journeying with his disciples towards Jerusalem. Luke chapter 9, later on the chapter, has that famous verse of he set his face, his eyes towards Jerusalem. Uh, and so that is coming. This, this, the first part here today is wrapping up his ministry in Galilee. The rest of chapter 9 is kind of the transition and getting them set to head towards Jerusalem. Um, today's passage specifically, and then over the next few weeks, we're going to see kind of a common theme of discipleship happening within these, within these uh, few, next few verses and, and chapters. Uh, Jesus is going to be spending more intentional time with the 12 apostles that he's called to follow him. Uh, when we consider discipleship, some of the best forms of discipleship are when we are learning by doing. Um, we're certainly going to see Jesus facilitate this learning, this type of learning in this passage, but what I... What I mean by that is we actually teach this as a part of our discipleship training course. There's kind of like four phases that you go through in a relationship with discipleship. Um, first, the, the first two are led by the leader, and it's, we, we kind of categorize them by, it's, a, it's an I'll do it, you watch. And the second phase is I'll do it and you help. And then the third phase, and what we're going to see today is a shift. It's a pretty significant shift where you start to give ownership to the person. You say, no, you do it. 
and I'll help. And we're going to see Jesus do that this morning. Learning by doing is incredibly valuable. I, I encourage all of our small group leaders, people that are in discipleship relationships, to press in and lean in on this particular phase because it is vital for the person to grow in this area. Learning by experience is invaluable. If I asked you, if you were part of a small group and I asked you, to, hey, you know what, you're going to lead our conversation next week on whatever chapter, the work and the learning that you do in that week preparing to facilitate the conversation, I guarantee you're going to learn more in that week than you do any other week that you're just sitting in the discussion. See what I mean? The disciples have been with Jesus for a while now. And they watched, they've watched him perform miracles. They've listened to him teach. They've struggled to comprehend his parables. They have been wrestling and pondering the answers to the, the questions that they just pepper at Jesus throughout their time with him. And as Jesus comes to the end of his ministry in Galilee, he knows that before he sets his face toward Jerusalem, before he goes to the cross, before he resurrects and gives the Great Commission, he's got some work to do with his disciples. The discipleship of the 12 was not quite complete. And so for the first time, we're going to see in our passage this morning that Jesus looks at them and says, you do, I'll help. These two stories, the commissioning of the, tw of the 12 and the feeding of the 5,000 are really significant stories. And they're incredible pictures of this moment of, you know what, you do it, I'll help you. As we look at this passage, as we consider the discipleship that's going on with the apostles, the main things that I want you to see this morning are this, that Jesus alone satisfies. And as followers of Christ, we're going to be utterly dependent upon him through faith. We're going to see our dependence show up in several ways in our passage, and I want to highlight those moments for us. And the way that we're going to do that, we're going to read through the text in its entirety here in just a second. And then I, I, I want to focus our time on those two stories, the commissioning of the 12, the feeding of the 5,000. And within these two accounts, I want to make sure we do three things well. I want to make sure that we ground our understanding biblically. I want to make sure that we consider what the disciples are actually learning in this moment. And then I want to consider us. What's our mission? What's our calling? How do we take these stories and apply them to ourselves? So let me read, let me pray, and then let's read Luke 9, verses 1 through 17. Father, we come before you. We're grateful to be together. We're grateful to open up your word. I just pray, Father, like we just sang in that song, show us your power. God, you reveal yourself in so many ways, and in our text this morning, I just pray that you would show us your power and how we have access to you through that. God, open our ears and our minds to, and our hearts to what you have for us this morning. Jesus, lead, our, lead and guide our time. Amen. Verse 1, summoning the twelve, he gave them power and authority over the demons and, and to heal disease. Then he sent them to proclaim the kingdom of God and, heal, and to heal the sick. Take nothing for the road, he told them. No staff, no traveling bag, no bread, no money. Don't take an extra shirt. Whatever house you enter, stay there and leave from there. If they do not welcome you, when you leave that town, shake the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and traveled from village to village, proclaiming the good news and healing everywhere. 
Herod the Tetrarch heard about, about everything that was going on. He was perplexed because some said that John had been raised from the dead and some that Elijah had appeared and others that one of the ancient prophets had risen. I beheaded John, Herod said, but who is this I hear such things about? And he wanted to see him. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus all that they had done, and he took them along with and withdrew to a privately to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds found out, they followed him. He welcomed them, spoke to them about the kingdom of God, and healed those who needed healing. Late in the day, the twelve approached and said to him, Send the crowd away so that they can go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find food and lodging, because we are in a deserted place here. You give them something to eat, he told them. We have no more than five loaves and two fish. They said, unless we go and buy food for all these people, for about 5,000 men were there. Then he told the disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. They did what he said and had them all sit down. Then he took the five loaves and two fish and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke them. He kept giving them to the disciples to set before the crowd. Everyone ate and was filled, and they picked up 12 baskets of leftover pieces. We're not going to waste any time in considering the commissioning of the 12 to ground our understanding. If you look at the first two verses, he says, Summoning the 12, he gave them power and authority over the demons, over all demons, to heal diseases. And then he sent them to proclaim the kingdom of God and heal the sick. The first thing we have to understand correctly is that power and authority is from Jesus. It is actually his. The disciples needed practical experience in ministry, so the power and authority were given to these disciples to experience something, to see, do the very things that Jesus had been doing. Quick definitions. Authority is the right to do something. Power here is the ability to do it. So yes, they had the power and the authority to cast out demons, to heal the sick, on demand. There was no waiting period. If they spoke it in the name of Jesus, it was happening immediately just the way that Jesus had done it before. But don't miss the stated order of instructions here. Jesus sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God first, and secondarily to heal the sick. The proclamation of the gospel was of first importance here. And it brings up the question, what are they proclaiming? Like, what are they teaching? After spending time with Jesus, the apostles have several significant things they can teach and pass on to others. They could challenge the way people's understanding of the law, because as, just as the way Jesus taught them. They could call people towards repentance, pleading for them to turn away from their sin. And think of all of the amazing illustrations and things that they could do to teach people. Love your enemies. Build your lives on a solid foundation. Receive God's word the way rich soil receives a good seed. They had a lot of tools in their toolbox for the conversations and interactions that they were having with everybody they came to in every village and every town they went to. Then in order to confirm the truth of what they were saying, the apostles performed miracles. Like Jesus himself, they, cu they cured the sick, they cast out demons, they cleansed lepers, they gave sight to the blind, lame walked. 
their miraculous healing ministry proved that what they were saying about the kingdom of God, what they were saying about Jesus as the Messiah, was true. There's a significant shift here. In order for the disciples to learn properly, Jesus pushes them into a position and forces them to be utterly dependent upon him. The instructions for travel are not curious, are they not? Like, take nothing for the road. No staff, no traveling bag, no bread, no money. Don't take an extra shirt. Wherever you go, if they let you in, stay there for as long as they will and then move on from there. Maybe my family is the exception here, but like, we leave for like three days and we have 17 bags, bikes, scooters, helmets, pillows, board games, movies, extra shoes, extra clothes. Like, you'd think we're leaving for months. With this set of instructions, the disciples, the apostles, they don't have any choice but to be utterly dependent upon Jesus. They literally have nothing. They don't have money to buy food. They don't have food to feed themselves. Jesus is looking at them and saying, I'm going to teach you an object lesson here. You go right now. Go. No preparation, just go. And in this way, they learn to trust God for absolutely everything to be utterly dependent upon Jesus' provision for them. Jesus also includes these instructions about rejection. If they're not welcomed when they leave that town to shake the dust off their feet as a testimony against them. Just so everybody's clear, we are talking about something very different than Taylor Swift's encouragement to just shake it off. Okay? This is a cultural history. There's some cultural history here. Like, when the Israelites would, would wander or move through pagan territories or enemy territories, as they left those territories and re-entered the Holy Land, they shook the dust off their feet. They literally shook the uncleanliness off of their feet. The action of shaking off the dust as a testimony against these people is a judgment and a rebuke of them. The translation literally means, like, hey, good riddance. There's three things about shaking off the dust. Um, It's so hard for me not to do that. Mm -hmm. Sorry. (laughs) First, Jesus was preparing the apostles for rejection. Not everyone's going to respond well to this message. Something that Jesus already knows and has, has experienced. I mean, we saw this in Luke 8 when Jesus casts the demon out of the man and into the pigs, and the village comes out, and they say, just go away. He knows rejection. But what a gracious gift to prepare his apostles for what they're going to experience. He was fully aware that some of these moments are going to include rejection, but yet the Lord is preparing and working in those moments. Because the second thing that we need to understand about shaking off the dust is that it's not a final judgment. Jesus is going to instruct these 12 as well as many other disciples in Acts 1, in Act 1 verse 8, to, that he says that we, you will be my disciples, sorry, my witnesses, in Jerusalem, in all of Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You see, he knows that they were going to be back in these towns. And you know what? When they go back to these towns, they have a message of a resurrected Savior that they're going to give. The third thing that we need to clarify and make sure that we're 
understanding when we to really ground our understanding in the text is that these were instructions for kingdom advancement, for going out to the lost. This is not a weapon to be used against other Christians. Far too many Christians have misused this verse to say that, hey, there's a biblical precedent to look at another brother in Christ and say, good riddance, I'm done with you. Just because they disagree. That idea is not in this text. It is simply wrong. These are instructions that set the urgency for in which Jesus wanted the apostles to, to move. Look, work quickly. Move into town. Share the gospel. If it's not received, move on because we're going to be back. The last important thing to note in grounding our understanding is an important one. Um, is that this passage, the, the empowerment and the authority to heal and cast out demons on the spot, it was something given specifically and uniquely to the apostles to confirm the message of the kingdom of God. And I want to be clear. What I'm not saying here, I'm not saying that Jesus doesn't heal today. It's not what I'm trying to communicate. I still think he heals today. But what I am saying is the ability and the power to heal and cast out demons on the spot, it was something that was given specifically to the apostles for that moment. Thabiti Anuile states this really well. He says, There's, there is a historical event that applies to, this is a historical event that applies to the apostles uniquely. It's not a pattern for all times. We need to see that lest we get distracted by the things like driving out demons, curing diseases, and going on mission trips without luggage. This was a short-term trip that was not a pattern for all time. It was for while Jesus was still here on earth. We know this because of his instructions change in Luke 22 in the upper room. As G when Jesus is approaching his betrayal and crucifixion, he shifts his instructions. He says in Luke 22, when I sent you out without a money bag, a traveling bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, not a thing. He said to them, but, but now... Whoever has a money bag should take it and a traveling bag, and whoever doesn't have a sword should sell his robe and buy one. You see, Luke 22 then becomes the pattern for the disciples, and that is to be prepared for the work. Be prepared to go. According to Matthew 28 and Acts 1, we have the same purpose today, but now we have a power that's even greater than the apostles had in Luke 8. We have the gift of the Holy Spirit. Thibidi goes on to say, I point this out because sometimes if we're not careful, we can covet what belonged to the apostles in the Gospels before the crucifixion and the resurrection. So much so that we miss the fact that what belongs to us after the resurrection is so much greater. We can so busily chase supernatural healings and we miss the Holy Spirit himself. Jesus provides his disciples power and purpose through the Holy Spirit. The authority of these apostles was unique, and to this day, we recognize their unique authority by reading their New Testament writings as the very word of God. So the question, does God still heal today? Yes, absolutely. Do you and I believe that we have a greater gift in the Holy Spirit today? I believe so, and here's why. That gift, that power, it doesn't leave us. God specifically states, it is going to be with us forever. So let's consider for a moment, what are the disciples learning? 
you guys remember driving a car for the very first time by yourself, like no one else in the car, got your license, and that very first moment you step in? I, like, I remember that moment so vividly, because I, I got in my car, and the first thought I had was like, should I be doing this? Like, is this okay? Like, you know, for a year, my mom and my dad's been sitting right there as I drove. Like, can I do this? And my heart was racing in sort of a tepid manner, but it quickly gave way to my heart racing in like exhilaration of like, this is the most amazing thing experience ever. I had this independence, this joy, this freedom. It was just awesome, right? All these emotions were circling around my head. I would imagine the disciples walking into that first town, that first village, casting out that first demon or healing someone, that experience was similar to that, to driving a car for the first time. I mean, imagine an apostle walking into a town, seeing a leper at the gate, and he stops to start talking to him. He proclaims the kingdom of God, and this leper is like receptive to it. And he asks him, do you want to be healed? And he says, yes. And so that apostle like, I'm going to do this, like, in the name of Jesus, be healed. And he touches him, or her. Did I just screw this whole thing up? Like, am, am I now unclean? Am I a leper? Like, what just happened? And very quickly, that emotion flies towards exhilaration because Jesus healed that person. They very quickly learned to trust that Jesus was going to do this work through them, that Jesus was going to heal. And they knew very quickly, hey, this isn't what I did. This is something that Jesus said, hey, I could do this. I went out and did it, and he just did it through me. The moment those miraculous healings happened, they, those disciples knew that they were in a position where they had to trust the Lord for every step. We know from this passage that all of it, the preaching, the healing, the judgment, it's all dependent upon the Lord. If it wasn't, the miraculous healings, the heart change, none of that stuff exists. Each aspect of the instructions, the preaching, the healing, the judgment, is through the power and authority of Jesus. From the very first miracle, the apostles knew that they were in utter dependence upon the Lord. As the 12 trusted in Jesus, they lived in that power and in that, in that purpose. They learned to, dependent, to be completely dependent upon Jesus. And every time there was an affirming response or a healing that took place, the Lord is the one getting the credit. So what about us? How do we take this passage? What is our mission, our calling? How do we apply this to us today? Last week, Tim asked a kind of a pointed question at the end of his sermon about personal belief. Do we actually truly believe that God can heal? And if we do, we can be comfortable taking the same disposition of the apostles to be first and foremost utterly dependent upon him. And if we're able to do that, then our mission becomes pretty straightforward to live our lives in such a way that we are all about the kingdom that we bring glory to God through our faithful obedience, whatever role God has called us into, that our lives ought to be about his glory. And if we're true to that cause, God's kingdom advances through our ordinary faithfulness. The, th the power and authority that we possess is for Christ and through his spirit. 
in our utter dependence, the Holy Spirit has room to work. And if there's room to work, the Holy Spirit is the one who convicts. The Holy Spirit is the one who changes hearts. That's been God's plan from the very beginning for you and I to carry this message to the end of the earth. So our mission is to minister to people's material as well as their spiritual needs for his glory. For the apostles, miracles proved and confirmed the truth of their message. So the question today, like, how do people know that the church is telling the truth about salvation? Because the reality is the church is the confirmation of the message today. And the answer to that is when they see the community of God, God's people, his witnesses, meeting physical as well as spiritual needs for his glory. That means caring for the sick, feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, visiting prisoners, welcoming strangers, showing hospitality to the homeless. We do those things because Jesus did those things. And we do them to... We do them because people's needs are being met, confirms the truth of the message. So often people don't respond to Christ, to receiving Christ, until they see his love demonstrated by us. The tangible healing of sacrificial service of the church. That we show people that we love them, that we're willing to sacrifice for them, that we're willing to suffer alongside of them. And under his lordship, then we have the opportunity to preach the gospel. We have that authority. It's our responsibility and our right to tell people that if they trust in Jesus, then on the basis of his suffering, on the basis of his death on the cross, on the basis of his resurrection, their sins will be forgiven. That is incredible if you really just stop, step back and think about it. It's something we say, you hear us say it all the time, but if you step back and consider that, it is incredible. Not only do we have the authority to do this, we also have the power through his Holy Spirit. When Jesus sends us out into the world to spread the gospel, he sent us with his Spirit. The Spirit is the thing that has the power to save sinners. God can and sometimes may heal someone physically, miraculously today. That still happens. But don't miss this. We have an authority and a power to heal in another way. You know, I'm in a position as a pastor on the staff to see the miracles of the Holy Spirit's work week in and week out. And I want to share one, um, a story with you from last week. It happened last Sunday. Chris and Diane Heil... Um, if you don't know them, they serve at our Kids Point welcome desk. So either you have, as you checked your kids in, you've interacted with them, or at least you've walked past them most Sundays. Chris and Diane serve there. They also serve in a couple other capacities in our church. Chris is a vice president of a company. He's an executive-level leader guy. Chris and Diane don't have any kids anywhere remotely close to the Kids Point age anymore, but they still serve faithfully over there. Last Sunday, I was walking through the lobby as the final worship songs were being played in the sanctuary, and out of the corner of my eye, I caught Chris um, kneeling down, reading a Bible to a little boy. And I don't know what the circumstances were that brought that situation to be, but don't sell that moment short and say, oh, that's sweet. 
As I was preparing for this message, this picture of Chris kneeling down just kept pounding my head like I could not get it out of my, my mind. Chris kneeling down, reading, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to a little boy. The Holy Spirit can use Chris in that moment to perform a healing miracle in the life of some little boy in our church. Chris's faithfulness to proclaim the kingdom here opens a door for his Holy Spirit. Opens a door for his authority and power to work through Chris to eternally heal someone in our congregation. And that healing is salvation. That is incredible. And it happens every week here. Be faithful to proclaim the gospel and in that moment, know that Jesus is performing miracles. We simply just need to be the church. Because Jesus alone is the one who's going to satisfy, you and I just need to be utterly dependent on him through faith. i got to move a little faster here. Um, the question about Herod, is, it's a peculiar little section. Luke separates these two miraculous accounts with this peculiar little statement about Herod to provide a really quick reflection Twice in the first six verses that we just talked about, the, the idea of proclaiming is put out there. Jesus instructs them to go proclaim, and then Luke says, hey, that's exactly what they did. And then these three verses that separate the two stories, it says that twice Herod heard. You see, the, Jesus and his disciples are turning heads in this moment, and it ultimately leads to this question that Herod has, and he wants to know, who is Jesus? And as fast as Luke moves into this section, he abruptly moves out of it to start telling his leaders, I'm going to answer that question, who is Jesus? When we consider the final section here, verses 10 through 17, the story of the feeding of the 5,000, discipleship ends up being on display here. In a discipleship relationship, we can spend a lot of time on one area of someone's life. Um, the need to revisit a subject over and over isn't uncommon because we're forgetful people, right? I mean, I can walk down into my basement to my storage room for one specific item and walk in that room and go, what in the world am I here for? <laughs> we need constant reminders of some of the most basic lessons of walking with the Lord, such as spend time reading and studying God's word because it gives you life. It's crazy how often we forget that, that we get into these ruts and rhythms and then somebody says, well, what's your time with the word like? Oh. Reminders such as praying over difficult situations and problems because that prayer brings peace and clarity so much better than the worry that goes along when we forget. We try to forge ahead in life, forgetting our utter dependence on the Lord and His Spirit in such a myriad of ways. I could spend the rest of my time just giving those stories. Point being, we need help with our spiritual amnesia. We need a faithful brother or sister in Christ to kind of thump us on the head and remind us, hey, keep your eyes on Jesus. The account of the feeding of the 5,000 is not a physical thump on the head, but it is one of the most eye-opening, powerful moments that Jesus reminds his disciples to keep their eyes on him. He reminds them that he alone can satisfy. So grounding our understanding in this text, in this story, the first thing we have to understand is this. 
this story about Jesus feeding 5,000 is one of only two stories that are in all four Gospels. The only other story is his, the story of his resurrection. I think the fact that this is the only story that sits alongside the resurrection in the Gospel accounts goes to show you the impact that this moment had. Most Christians, we've heard this story so often, I think we forget the utter amazement that these people must have experienced. The disciples have never seen this kind of miracle before. Jesus had been unveiling his power gradually, healing one person at a time, controlling the, the, the storm, but he had never shown or demonstrated his divine power to give people the bread of life. Philip Ryken, the commentator on this, I think he gives a really good illustration. He, to kind of set the stage here, he says, put this miracle into perspective. Imagine the logistics of trying to plan to feed 5,000 people. Everybody got that picture in your mind, how crazy that would be? Better yet, now try to imagine having 5,000 people show up unexpectedly for dinner. And then imagine trying to feed them from the leftovers in your refrigerator. Feeding of the 5,000 is a spectacular example of Jesus' divine power. The circumstances of the whole event made deception absolutely impossible. 5,000 hungry men would not have all agreed that they all had their fill if they didn't have substantial food in front of them. Twelve full baskets of fragments would never have been taken up if real material loaves and fishes had not been miraculously multiplied. So in short, nothing other than, no other explanation works but the finger of God. There could be no mistake about it, the reality of the greatness of this miracle. It was done publicly, and it was done before many, many witnesses. The same power that in the beginning of time created something, the earth, out of nothing, just created food from scraps. Paul reminds us that Jesus is all-powerful and all-satisfying in Romans 4. He says, he who gives life to the dead and calls things into existence that do not exist. When Jesus wills a thing, it will be done. When he commands a thing to happen, it will come to pass. His power, he has the ability to create light out of darkness, order out of disorder, strength out of weakness, joy out of sorrow, and food from little to nothing. I sat down with my small group a week, a little over a week ago, to kind of get their thoughts and to read through this passage together. And they had one overarching question. What did this look like? Like, how did it work? Well, I'm sorry to disappoint you all as well, but we just simply don't know. And I want to highlight two things about that question, though, that we can pull from this passage. We're not told exactly how the food multiplied to feed so many people, but the one thing that's very, very clear is that Jesus is miraculously the one responsible for it. This miracle didn't manifest to everyone at once. Like It's not like they all had a plate and all of a sudden, there's food. Take a look at verse 16. It says, he, Jesus, kept giving them to the disciples to set before the crowd. Basket after basket after basket was coming directly from Jesus, and everybody saw it, and everybody knew it. We know that there's about 5,000 men in this crowd. What's not counted in this number 
is the, the amount of women and children accompanying this large group. So I, I think 5,000 is a modest number. Conservatively, if you include that some of them brought their wives with them or children with them to be healed or to see Jesus, this crowd is likely more like eight or 10,000 people. Consider the massive size of that group of people. And the second thing we need to see about how, what did it look like, how did it work, is the truth of the fact that everyone ate and was filled. They were all satisfied. And this account has uh, some striking similarities to Moses and the Israelites wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. Um, there's one distinct difference. You know, in the Old Testament, Jesus miraculously provides manna and quail for the Israelites. They ate, but then they grumbled, is what the text says. In this passage today, everyone ate and was filled, and they were satisfied. So what are the disciples learning here as we consider this? The disciples have retreated with Jesus for some rest, probably much needed rest. In this moment, the disciples learn a powerful lesson when the masses start showing up. Masses amounts of people show up uninvitedly and intrude on this privacy and rest that they're enjoying with Jesus. And this story is so condensed, it's easy to miss. Verse 11, it says, they, the massive crowd, they followed him, period. He welcomed them. Put yourself in the apostle's shoes here for a moment. Imagine exhausted yet overcome with the joy of what you just experienced, but you're spent. Now picture a crowd funneling out of the, out of the gates of Kauffman Stadium, eight to 10,000 people looking for you, coming towards you. Jesus doesn't run, he doesn't hide, he doesn't rebuke them for coming. But there's a willingness and a readiness to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal those who needed healing. A significant part of what the disciples learn is that Jesus is ready and willing to provide physically and spiritually for people no matter the time, no matter how much, and no matter the inconvenience. It will be something that shapes the disciples' understanding for the rest of their lives. And then when it comes to the dinner, the other thing that's curious about this is Jesus doesn't deal with the crowd. He deals with his disciples. He says to them, feed them. Jesus is going to teach another lesson to his disciples that they need to be utterly dependent upon him. You see, the statement that Jesus makes is emphatic, and the emphasis falls on the word you. He's looking at them saying, you do it. I can only imagine that this scene is much like the scene in the Pixar movie, Inside Out. Have you guys seen this movie where you get the cartoon characters of the emotions that are controlling us in our lives that are going on in your brain? At the end of the movie, there is this scene where the main character, Riley, looks at a boy and says, hi. And then it quickly pans into the boy's mind, and the panic alarms are going off. It's, girl, girl, girl. And like all the emotions are running around screaming with their hands over their head. The disciples are the ones that notice the problem in front of them, that people needed something, and the best way for them is to, hey, send them away so they can go take care of that. But Jesus looks at them and says, you do it. You give them something to eat. And I can only imagine that each of them had that panic alarm flashing in their brain of like, how? We have five loaves and two fish. If you read the gospel account of John, it's because they stole it from a little boy. Like, 
the only reason the disciples even mentioned the idea of buying groceries is actually to show how impossible the ask actually was. The most logical thing to do was to send them away. Also consider the fact that they retreated with Jesus as soon as they came back from their journey, which, in which Jesus said, hey, don't take any bread, don't take any food. Feeding everyone would have cost them a fortune, somewhere in the range of seven to eight months worth of their entire salary for a year. The Gospel of Mark and John actually give an estimate. They give a 200 denarii, and that's Philip's like guess at what, what it would cost just to feed everyone a, little bit, a minimal amount. You see, one denarii was a day's wage, so 200 is a really significant amount of money. And even though the disciples just had this incredible experience healing people, proclaiming the news, seeing people respond to that, the one option they don't consider is to ask Jesus to provide the food. So Jesus takes this moment and reminds the disciples in their relationship that they ought to come to Jesus for everything, to be utterly dependent upon him. Jesus is so gracious in this moment to deal with his apostles in this manner. He gives them instructions, hey, set, set them into groups of 50. And he's so gentle with them that no one is left with an empty stomach. And the disciples walk away from yet another miracle learning a valuable lesson that Jesus alone is the one that's going to be able to satisfy people. Each disciple had a full basket. There were 12 baskets picked up, one for every disciple. The abundance of God's grace would have been so powerful, and the weight of that basket would have been an incredible reminder of the fact that God just did something incredible that they never thought would happen. He provided far more than they could have ever expected. Jesus is the one that will supply and he will satisfy people's needs. And by the time we get to the book of Acts and we start reading about the apostles, they know from where their authority and they know from where their provisions come from. So our mission in moments where life is good, in moments where the panic alarms are going off, come to Jesus. We ought to live in our dependence through faith. So I want to ask the question, how, like, how are we handling ourselves? Are we in utter dependence today? You see, the story of Jesus reveals, reveals a key to our dependence. And that's prayer. We at any moment in life can draw near to him in prayer. Jesus models this for us. He doesn't have any food either. But he takes what is brought to him, and he looks up to heaven, and he blessed, and he broke it. This passage teaches us to trust God for what we need. We can draw near to him with boldness. We can open our hearts in confidence, because the reality is, we know this. Prayer calms our hearts. It calms our emotions. Prayer brings clarity and peace in moments where things are chaotic. Because we are setting, and the reason that is is because we're setting down our agenda. We're setting down our control and saying, God, lead us. He's a savior of infinite compassion and loving kindness. And the promise here is that, you know what? You do that, I will satisfy. Utter dependence leads to the conviction to act. If we live that way, what will end up happening is we want to tell other people about it. So go and proclaim the kingdom of God. 
In the same way that Jesus took his disciples and said, you give them something to eat. I think we need to really see this, is that there's the same emphatic emphasis when he gives the Great Commission. He gathers before he gathers in Matthew 28 and says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go, that go is to all of us. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And then Jesus gives us this incredible, gracious reminder. He says, and remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Worship team, if you guys are down here, you guys come on up or make your way up here. I don't see any of them over there. <laughs> um, We have this wonderful reminder right here this morning that God is with us. Praise God, there are going to be six people that publicly proclaim their faith in him in baptism this morning. Praise God for the faithful people like Chris Heil serving week in and week out here. Go and make disciples, proclaim the kingdom of God, and let's enjoy watching Jesus supply and satisfy our needs. The final part of our mission that we can draw from the feeding of the 5,000 is this. Be the church. See people and meet their needs. Seeing others and meeting their needs is one of the most tangible ways that you and I can get involved in the game here. It's a great first step. God is the one that's ultimately going to use you to provide The disciples cannot provide the food themselves. Only Jesus could do that. But there were things that they could do. It's important to see that they saw people. They recognized the need, and they gave Jesus what they had, or at least they gave the little boys lunch is what they had. Five loaves, two fish, and they gave it away freely because Jesus was the one who had provided for them. Philip Ryken says this, There is hope for everyone in Jesus because he's able to save anyone who comes to him for help. This is as true for us spiritually as it was for the crowds medically. By the power of his grace, Jesus is able to forgive our sins, renew our spirit, and comfort our sorrows. He is able to touch the wounded places in our hearts and make us whole. And the reality of that is God does those things through our obedience and taking small steps of action, seeing people. The good news of the gospel, it's a free gift. It's God's gift, not ours. We just bring the needs of some people that we see, and we bring the free gift, and then God does the rest. Because Jesus alone is the one who supplies, and he will satisfy. We just ought to be obedient and dependent in that. Amen? I want to encourage us to take some time to stand and worship together. Um, I have one thing I want to share at the end, but thank you for being here.